Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. I, I certainly have a great admiration for what you're creating with uh, with your Mamma Mia podcast network. It's um, it's very inspiring to uh, actually see someone successfully creating that kind of platform in Australia. Thanks. Yeah, we um, it's the part of our business probably along with the US that I'm most excited about um for the past year or so. Um, and it's it's pretty typical of how our business has grown in many ways in that I always just try to sit in the seat of women, well, being one, and I figure that I just follow my curiosity and whatever I'm really interested in, I find that because I've got such mainstream taste, lots of other people are really interested in as well. So when I came back from holidays about a year and a half ago and said, podcast, podcast, podcast. And I, I, you know, our management team didn't even really know what one was. And (laughs) we'd started doing it a little bit, but we weren't doing it properly. And we were just kind of mucking around. And I just said, no, you guys, this is, this is it. This is the next big thing for us. And in the end, I think they just got sick of me and um, let me kind of go off and, and do it and build a podcast team and launch all these podcasts. And it's given us um, a huge leg up, not just over our competition in Australia, but internationally, because there isn't another women's podcasting network that I'm aware of. And iTunes have tapped us um, in terms of international um, promotion as well. So, you know, it's been really great in that way. That's amazing. Um, it's it's really, as I said before, it's, it's ex- extraordinary to kind of observe. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, there are so many interesting things that you say in that, um, you know, Australia seems to take a little while to catch up to the rest of the world when it comes to new media um, and new technology. And that you've found a way to embrace this and really start to get it out to the world or to Australia in particular. Um, How how do you see uh, podcasting uh, as compared to, say, blogging, which is, I guess, kind of how you created Mamma Mia to begin with? Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot lately that saying podcasting feels like blogging did back in sort of 2007 and 2006, which is when I I started Mamma Mia, it sort of felt like everything's possible and anything's possible. And Mm. it feels, um, I don't know, it feels just very exciting, you know. Um, For us, it's been been great to be able to, to use the audience that we already have and introduce a lot of them to podcasting because so many, I mean, I still meet so many people today who've, don't understand what a podcast is mm. and have never, or they might just have heard of, you know, that podcast about that guy who went to jail for killing his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, serial. And they're like, yeah, it's this new thing. It's amazing. It, it just makes me um, occasionally exasperated, but also really excited at the thought of how much potential there still is. Hey yo, and welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next. This week's episode is number 52 of my weekly podcast, Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. That's me, I'm Alistair Marks. And being that it's episode 52, 
That means that we're rounding out year one of the show, and what a way to round out year one. This week, I welcome to the Chat Cave a woman who, at the age of 24, was the youngest editor of the Australian Cosmo. She's created an empire with the Mamma Mia network, which you can find at mamamia.com.au. She also operates in the podcasting space and is creating a tremendous network with some outstanding shows. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, episode 52, Mia Friedman. And before we ramble on, friends, I invite you to jump on iTunes or Stitcher, hit that magical subscribe button, rate and review the show. It is free, and it really does help me to bring you tremendous guests like Mia Friedman. And if this is your first time tuning in, while you're there, why not have a look at some of the other amazing guests that I've had the fortune to sit down with over the last 12 months. I'd really like to thank you all for spending this first year with me on the Coming Up Next work. And if you feel like a bit of interactivity to celebrate, you can find me at comingupnext.com.au, facebook.com slash cunpodcast, at cunpodcast, on the Instagram and at cunpodcast on the Twitter. So now, sit back, kick your feet up, and enjoy episode 52 of Coming Up Next with Mia Friedman. Being a women's media company, um, women are, are picking up podcasts at a really, really fast rate for a couple of reasons. Women really like to multitask. Mm. So they love listening to podcasts while they're doing things that don't enable them to read a screen, um, you know, cooking dinner or um, driving or um, exercising or commuting to work, all those kinds of things. Um and also it's a very intimate medium. So that also is pretty appealing to women. You know, it's that thing, it's in your earbuds. It's like, they keep saying it's like conversations with friends. Mm. So, and women also have a, a capacity, we're insatiably hungry for information, but we've got very limited time. So, um, you know, it's, it's lovely having that ability to just flood your mind with information at yeah. all times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and, and it, and it helps with that feeling of kind of connection and I guess, as you say, intimacy um, yeah. that one may be lacking from a life, particularly if you're a small business owner or, um, or an entrepreneur or something in that kind or, or you know, a mum as well. Um, and it feels like radio, uh, sorry, podcasts are as disruptive to um, radio at the moment um, as the internet was to print media about 10 years ago. So it oh, wow. feels quite like a very, very momentous shift. Yeah. Um, I... Suddenly the idea of, and, and streaming TV as well. So suddenly the idea of listening to someone that I want to hear between 8 and 10 with commercials and traffic reports and news and a bunch <laughs> of stuff that I'm not interested in and songs, um, that seems positively antiquated. Yeah. Uh, I, was, so... I, I read an interesting stat that, podcasting is um, uh, becoming almost on parity with radio as the preferred uh, audio medium in uh, in the USA. It doesn't surprise me. And again, back to women, you know, you look at um, there's not a single woman on talkback radio on the AM dial, In certainly in Sydney. I don't know if it's, if it's the case around Australia. I imagine it's pretty much the same. Mm. Um, FM radio, there are no shows helmed by two women. I think there may be the 3 p.m. pickup, which is sort of, the, the mummy program that um, is on is on one of the the networks with with Monty Diamond and Michelle Laurie who are fantastic broadcasters mm. but they would never put the two of them in breakfast together they have mm. to put Michelle with a bloke yeah um, and Monty won't even get a bait in in breakfast so 
it, it that idea of having two women and even three women on radio together on an on an audio show is something that that podcasts are like well duh of course you would and so that's why women are women are flocking to to podcasts because it doesn't feel like men trying to work out what women want to listen to on the radio mm. and you have um amazing people like michelle laurie uh hosting podcasts on your network we do and men as well so we've got andrew Dado hosts one of our podcasts osha gunsberg we're about to launch um so it's not that we don't have men as well it's that we are very specific about who our audience is i mean it's so tough for commercial radio because they are broadcasters and underlining the term broad mm. they have to appeal to a huge number of people and that can sometimes mean that it's hard to appeal to anyone because you have to appeal to everyone. Whereas because we are doing shows for women, it's much easier to be really clear about what we're, you know, the content that we're creating. Mm. I, think it's a, I think it's a really great time for creative expression and for creative freedom for people because, as you say, you know, the, you're not necessarily having to appeal to a broad demographic. You can be very specific and very niche about what you want to do and what you want your creative outlet to be about yeah exactly and and that's something for us that that we're also have been able to monetize really well because you know we're not a community service we're a private company and we have a lot of a lot of bills and salaries to pay um and it costs a lot of money you know there's a lot we had to invest a lot to we've got two podcast studios one in sydney one in melbourne that are connected together with tie lines um we've got a podcast team of four full-time staff um, among all the other staff that we have. So monetizing it um, always had to be part of the plan. Mm. And we've um, been able to do that really, really, um, you know, really happily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the start of this conversation has um, kind of been a very happy, uh, I don't <laughs> want to say accident, but I certainly didn't plan on starting this conversation with um, talking about, the intricacies of podcasting but monetizing a podcast is certainly something that I'm very curious about and I wondered if you would share perhaps some of your tips on how you have managed to do that sure look for us um it, it's difficult you know that we we've turned the model on its head a little bit because the model um for most podcasts particularly in the u.s are acquisition-based podcasts so you hear you know go to squarespace.com forward slash whatever it is mm, like the name affiliate of the links affiliate links exactly and um unless you have huge numbers to your podcast and most podcasters don't um it can be incredibly hard to make money that way mm. because we have existing relationships with advertisers um as part of the mama mia women's network uh we are able to on sell podcasts as another part of their media spend when they're trying to reach women so we don't do affiliate links uh, affiliate um ads like that we do i suppose the equivalent of native ads so i'll give you an example yesterday um on mamma mia out loud which is like our flagship podcast hosted by monique Bowley and co-hosted by mamma mia's editor kate debrito and me mm. um our sponsor was invisalign the braces people you know the invisible braces people and so um, our host Mons had a live read to do, so there was some information that she had to get across. But then we just started talking about it, and I mentioned that my husband had used Invisalign, and Kate was asking about what it meant, and we just had a, a very natural, organic, unplanned. I didn't even know who this sponsor was before we started talking, um, 
and we just had a chat about it. And that's kind of money can't buy stuff. Yeah. So, um, and it was completely authentic. Um, you know, I wasn't paid money to make up a story or anything like that. And that comes back to, I suppose, the business model of Mamma Mia full stop. It's very much about helping advertisers to create content that's actually interesting. So it's kind of like don't interrupt what your audience wants to consume, be what the audience wants to consume. Yeah. Um, and they're often not able to do that on their own. In fact, mostly they can't, which is fair enough because that's not their area of expertise. They produce braces or they make cars or they make insurance or they make breakfast cereal, whatever it happens to be. But we know how to engage women and how to talk to women because we have to do that a hundred times a day, literally. Every post that we decide to write, the way that we write it, the way that we sell it on Facebook, the different way that we sell it on other platforms, um, you know, so we are able to use that expertise to help our advertisers create interesting content. So it's win-win. So our audience gets things that are interesting um, and that content is paid for by our advertisers. So, you know, that's the, the same model that we apply to podcasting. And that's not very helpful. I'm so sorry because most people <laughs> aren't able to do that because you can't go out and knock on the door of Johnson & Johnson or Holden or whatever it is. So I think the affiliate model is is the best that, that um, most podcasters have at the mm. moment. But it's just, look, as you know, it's frustrating because Apple holds all the cards and uh, what advertisers want is analytics. They want to understand not just that you've got, you know, 200 subscribers or 2,000 downloads. They want to know who those people are. Are they men? Are they women? How old are they? What's their socioeconomic group? Um, Because they don't want to waste their money um, paying for ads that are talking to people they're not trying to reach. Mm. So until Apple can get with the program and supply podcasters with better analytical data, it's really, really hard for everyone. Mm. That's my rant. <laughs> and I will second your rant. <laughs> um, I mean, what, you, uh, what you've created with Mamma Mia has had such a broad um, reach and such a broad appeal. And it feels like the podcasting uh, is just the next step in the evolution of what has been uh, kind of tremendous uh, collaborative um, uh, creation uh, for you and with some amazing people that you've met and through some amazing experiences that you've had uh, in your career. I was reading um, this morning... Uh, something that you said where that was uh, if you want to be working in the online uh, in the online space you need to be prepared to eat uh, a breakfast of cement every day (laughs) did I say that yeah it's so true (laughs) today's a very good example of that (laughs) oh yeah what what's happened yeah I'm copying it big time um I did just a Facebook post actually a couple of nights ago um actually a couple of days ago I, I was voting I got an early postal vote and um I noticed that on first on the Senate ticket was a party called Health Australia Party and I'd heard about them before and we'd written a story about a month ago or maybe even more when nobody was interested in the election, which is mm. pretty much the story of the whole campaign. <laughs> and it, it said how this, this party who, are, who used to be called the Natural Medicine Party and um, who are a bit of a, a bogus front for some very alternate health views and some very dangerous health views including... Um, a lot of people as part of that party have anti-vaccination views. And because they've got, just by, by pure good fortune, the first, the first spot on that Senate ballot, mm. 
and they sound like a party that's, you know, Health Australia Party, that sounds like a good thing. They're going to get a lot of accidental votes and that's a really dangerous thing because um, their name really belies what they're about. And, you know, I'm fine. You can vote for whoever you want and you can ha- have whatever political party you want. But just like when the um, anti-vaxxers used to call themselves the Australian Vaccination Network and they were actually taken to the High Court and forced to change their name because that name suggests that they are either pro-vaccination or a neutral body and in fact they're not so Mm. yeah my problem is when you have a deceptive name so I just did a Facebook post that said be careful when you're voting um this is what you need to know about this party and it's just gone ballistic it's had five it's had a reach of 5.5 million I've never done anything that's had that before and it's got about 30,000 comments and um, people are going nuts, like all the anti-vaxxers have come and I'm getting heaps of abuse, but everyone's fighting with each other. And it's quite intense. It's not usually like that. It's not usually like that. But often you can't tell, well, I can't tell when something like that's going to blow up. Sometimes it just blows up when you don't realise that it's going to. So I just, I mean, I just haven't haven't really read the comments. But, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> once upon a time that would have absolutely gutted me and mm. floored me and I would have trying to convince them no but this is what I meant and you don't understand and trying to make people like me but now I'm just like well that's the internet <laughs> yeah it's it's the world that we live in I suppose at, at this kind of it is juncture um and Facebook's actually a lot nicer than um Twitter Twitter's a, a sewer most of the time um in terms of feedback mm. um so I, I'm barely on Twitter anymore at all but you know, I think it's not just people like me who are struggling. I think everyone struggles, whether you're a blogger or a podcaster or just someone who goes on Twitter or Facebook. And, and you, you know, everyone's had the experience of fights breaking out on their page or people being rude or not wanting to say something in case, you know, they got they got negative feedback. And I think it's something we're all living so publicly now and I think it's something everyone is struggling with, you know, at some level. Mm. That kind of... Um honesty and integrity versus the need to be kind of perfect and shiny. Yeah, and that idea of um, everyone having an opinion and, you know, if you have an, the louder your opinion is, the louder other people's opinions are going to be. And mm. I learned a long time ago, if you write angry on the internet, you'll get angry back. You set the tone. I mean, not always. There's also a lot of women particularly who get shocking abuse and threatening violent threats of rape and murder and horrible things when they're not saying anything Mm. aggressive or, uh, you know, for no reason or or for for little reason. Um, But um, generally I find that if you write angry, there's a much bigger chance that you will get a very angry response back. And I probably did write angry because anti-vaxxers is something one of the few things these days that I do get genuinely angry about. Mm. Um, and in my opinion, fair enough too. Uh, Thanks, Hans. Oh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> it's it's interesting, I suppose, the way that uh, media and social media has evolved uh, over the span of your career. Do you remember the first time that you wrote something um, and... You you kind of you kind of knew or felt like this was something that you wanted to do as a career. 
I suppose my first conscious thought was about it was um, reading the editor's letter um, in Dolly magazine when Lisa Wilkinson announced that she was leaving to go to Clio. And um, I remember feeling betrayed and shocked and just wanting to go with her. Mm. Um, and I wasn't ready to go to Clio yet. I was only probably 10 or, or 11. Um, but I remember, you know, um, I suppose it, it, jumping through the page and me understanding these were real people with real jobs and and real careers and planting the seed in some way. Um, and eventually I did I did graduate to Clio as a reader and then as when I got older, I, I started doing work experience for Lisa and um, she went on to hire me eventually after I'd sort of done interned there for quite a few months um, for free. And um, that was it. That was, that was the start of my career. The other thing that I remember her saying in that first interview that I had with her when she offered me the work experience placement, she said, you know, magazines are either in their blood or in your blood or, or they're not like you might be suited to a different type of journalism mm. and I remember thinking oh no this is this is what I want to do and and it was and I did for the next sort of 15 years um but I remember it being very very clear to me in that moment mm. um and so you started a uh, work experience with Clio when you were 19 yeah, I did. I did. I was, um, you know, just office dog's body. That's not fair, actually. I was. It was a, a well-run intern program in that I helped them and they helped me. I got experience and, I mean, it wasn't called an intern program. It was just called, you know, work experience. Mm. Um, and I felt absolutely privileged and honoured to be there. And had I not been given that opportunity, I don't know how I would have broken into magazines. Mm. So I'm a bit, you know, as as you know, and that's another thing that, that we sometimes cop a lot of flack for. I'm a huge believer in intern programs and their ability to unearth talent and give young people opportunities that they would never otherwise have. Yeah, I think uh, intern programs and attachment programs in you know on film sets and things like that, uh, tremendous opportunities. Um, and I think there, I think there should be more of them uh, personally. Um, mm, I agree. The people who are usually most um, opposed to intern programs are people who don't intern or want to intern. Yeah. <laughs> but they feel very strongly that nobody should intern, which I think is uh, just insane. I think there's also perhaps the generation that is kind of getting a bit into the senior years now. Uh, certainly in the entertainment industry, I feel like there's a very possessive kind of... Um, mentality and almost a poverty kind of mindset when it comes to um, helping the next generation up um, I'm not sure yeah, if that's I'm not sure if that's the same in um, in the kind of editorial or um, or journalist world but I've certainly felt that at times like it can be very difficult to kind of get that foot in the door yeah, it is. It's really, really difficult because as these industries are shrinking, everyone's a threat. So there are less jobs to go around. So um, I find that, you know, we take our intern program really seriously and, and we make sure that, that we give way more than we get mm. um, from our interns. But um, 
you know, there has to be that mutual benefit. Otherwise it is exploitative. But I think what people don't realise when they talk about paying interns, which is, you know, fairly absurd, is that there are other ways to invest, other, or there are other ways to pay people than just money. Mm. And that's time, you know, when you've got um, a bunch of senior managers and senior staff and experienced staff in, a, in, a, in any company who are spending time with you and passing on their expertise, I mean, that's invaluable. Mm. It really is. And, and, you know, we don't have intern programs where you have to come and work for three months for free because I agree, you know, the claims that, well, any intern program like that um, just is only available to someone who's, who's wealthy enough or from a privileged enough background to be able to not work. I, and I'm in complete agreement with that. So our intern programs are one day a week for three months. And it's, you know, very, has clear boundaries and that's the time that is required. And then we open it up. We can, you can do a two-week intensive intern program um, if you're in another state because obviously that's, that, that just rules, it, rules them out otherwise. Um, but, yeah, look, I think that the idea, and particularly now with the media changing so much, I think that, you know, um, there are a lot of print journalists who need to upskill into digital and they haven't. And um, that's a problem. That's a problem. So I think that there are always things to be learned. And I think that um, interning is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um... Certainly in my industry. I can't speak for every industry. But, um, you know, in, in journalism and media, I think it's, it's invaluable. Well, it sounds as though you've, uh, you've created a fantastic platform for, uh, for the next generation to come up through. Um, yeah, we use it as our... Um, as our way of recruiting. So we actually, it gives us an opportunity to see who, who's good. We've unearthed quite a lot of talent. We go on to employ probably about 35% of our interns. Wow. Some capacity afterwards, yeah. How integral do you think the internship that you did, um, even though it may not have perhaps looked, appeared as though it was a traditional internship, um, how integral do you think it was in kind of creating your work um, work? mentality uh, and this kind of insatiable hunger that you have um, and and that this kind of competitive nature that you have or never being complacent and always moving forward um, I think I don't know that's a good question I mean my internship was was really crucial because it was the only way I could have got a foot in the door I was just I had no experience I was you know um, I'd completed a year of a communications degree, um, which had taught me pretty much nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I would have had no chance of, of getting in the door otherwise without sort of being there on the ground and having that experience. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I learned to sort of – and I think the other thing is that when you're young, you don't know what a workplace even is. You don't mm. even know what the job is or how it works. So just being around adults and seeing what work looks like and um, all of that is, is again, just, just invaluable. Because, mm. I mean, you would go on to become the youngest ever editor of the Australian edition of Cosmo um, at 24. And, I mean, that takes a certain something particularly given that what I'm kind of understanding now is that you only really had five years' experience under your belt uh, at that point. 
Yeah, I thought that was actually late. I thought that was old. Right. Um, <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? Because, you know, it's not like Gen Y or millennials have a monopoly on being overconfident. Yeah. <laughs> I think that every young person thinks they know everything and I was no exception. So I wanted – Lisa Wilkinson had been the editor of Dolly when she was 21 and I kind of had that in my mind as a benchmark. But I'd given myself a little bit more wiggle room and I'd said, okay, I want to be the editor of Clio by the time I was 25. And when that looked like it wasn't happening – um, I, you know, decided I was going to move to New York and freelance for Australian titles over there and do something completely different. Um, but then the Cosmo job came up and yeah, I, I got that and probably didn't at, at the time didn't realize what a, what a big deal it was. I think that, um, being naive can sometimes, um, be helpful because you're not so scared. Mm. And I did some really stupid things still. Like I, you know, the, my first issue, I sort of wanted to take out all the sex and relationships in Cosmo and, and my boss sort of gulped, but thought, oh, I brought this young person in to try to see what we, young women want. Maybe she's right. And of course I wasn't right. Yeah. I was completely wrong. <laughs> um, and I learned that very, very quickly. But um yeah, it was, it was and, and then I got pregnant almost immediately. So I didn't feel young. I think that's why when I look back now, I never felt young when I, when I was editing Cosmo. I always felt because I was living this almost secret life that wasn't in the demographic of my reader mm. in that I was, a, a, you know, these days what would be called a young mum and I was not living the Cosmo sex positions kind of a <laughs> going out dating life. Mm. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, it was it was fantastic. I loved my time at Cosmo. I really did. I learned so much. I learned. I made so many mistakes. I did some things I was proud of. I did some things I was ashamed of. Um, and it was a great time. Mm. It's interesting to kind of track through a person's career, as I do when I'm um, meeting people for the first time or speaking with people on this podcast, and to kind of see these through lines about who they are and, and the kind of attributes that they've developed over the course of their life that have led them to where they're being now. And, you know, you really uh, nowadays wear your heart on your sleeve, like we were talking about before. You kind of don't shy away from being a really raw voice in the media. Uh, has, it, has it always been that way for you or is this something that has kind of been born out of necessity? Get, well, firstly, it's laziness because it's easier to be yourself than to pretend to be someone else. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, and it's also, um, I don't know, it's never been a decision. It's never been a decision. Um, it's always just what's felt right to me because um, the thing about being open and honest and writing about personal things and writing about what's inside your head is that it's risky in some ways because people could go, oh, you're a freak or we don't like you or you're an mm. idiot. Or they can go, oh, thanks. I thought I was the only one that felt like that. And fortunately for me, it's usually that. It's usually people going, oh, thanks for writing that you hate playgrounds or you don't like playing with your kids or um, you felt like this after you had a mis miscarriage or this is what anxiety feels like. Um, it's I've always had a positive response and that helps me to feel less like a freak as well but ultimately I'm a writer so the only way and I have been since I was a kid in terms of the way I express myself 
is out loud. And when I say that, I mean, you know, usually in writing. Mm. Um, that's how I process the world around me um, by writing about it and, and sharing it. So, yeah, it's never been a conscious choice. It's just authenticity is such an overused word now. <laughs> but, um, it is a buzzword. Yeah, I've always liked it's yeah, I, I think it's always been how I've considered myself in that. And when I say that, I mean, I don't feel like I always have to make myself look good either physically or, you know, in what I say. I, I'm not trying to make this fake perfect picture. I'm just trying to be honest. Mm. So in creating Mamma Mia, was that, I suppose, was the thinking behind that to give yourself that voice and that platform to really um, go headstrong into what you believe the right direction for this kind of journalism and writing should be? Um, yeah. So I, I felt that, you know, I started Mamma Mia because I felt that what was available for women was just really not enough. So um, back in sort of 2007, 2008, the sites that were talking to women well, the women's media meant women's magazines mm. and and then online it meant parenting sites, fashion sites, gossip sites, right. cooking sites. That's pretty much it. And if you weren't into those things, then, well, then you, I suppose you could go to a, a generic site like, a, like you know, SMH or whatever, um, news.com. Um, and news.com was very different back then. Even that was pretty blokey. So... Um, it was sort of anathema to um, publishers to think that women could be interested in lots of different things at once. Mm. And no woman I knew um, considered herself a mummy or a fashionista or a gossip junkie. Like every woman I knew would talk about everything from politics to pelvic floors to Gwyneth Paltrow in the same three minutes of conversation. You know, we, we, we have a broad range of interests, yeah. shock horror. And I know that sounds so obvious now, but back then it wasn't. And so Mamma Mia was different and continues to be different in terms of I can't think of another um, generalist women's website in Australia. Um, some of the um, big news sites like and big media companies like Fairfax and, and um, News Limited have tried to create sort of verticals within their big sites to, to – um, to talk to women, but they haven't had a lot of, there's that word again, they haven't had a lot of authenticity to them. It's more been, we've got all these female readers, let's try to monetize them. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, my God, go, go nuts. The more content for women around, the better. But, um, you know, we, we once had a meeting with an advertiser in the early days and he said, oh, what's Mamma Mia about? And he's like, oh, it's a women's website. And he goes, oh, women, that's an interesting niche. <laughs> no, as wow. if. It were a site for, you know, people who liked hiking, you know. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, like, yes, it is an interesting so, niche that populates more than 50% of the world. Exactly. So to me, I thought it was just so obvious. Um, this idea that women were interested in a bunch of different things. We liked having a space that just spoke to us. Um, and it, so we didn't have to trawl through a bunch of stuff that, was directed at men or, you know, often on those, on those um, news sites, the comments can be pretty hectic as well yeah. and really aggressive. So it was, you know, it started off very much as a community um, and now that community lives in all sorts of places like on Facebook and 
um, on the podcasts and and everything. But the the idea of it remains the same, and that is, um, you know, it's about making women feel better about themselves, not worse. And I suppose coming back from a magazine background where mags were very much sold on angst and inadequacy um, and this idea of aspiration to this perfect life, um, it was appealing to me to to find a way to make women feel better about themselves. Mm. One of the most impressive things about it is how you've grown it. And to kind of uh, highlight on the podcast front again, it takes more than amazing content to create a massive audience uh, with a sustained kind of reach. Um, And, you know, you mentioned before that this post that you did on Facebook a few days ago reached 5 million people, which, you know, is almost a quarter of the population of the country. Um, Yeah, that's just nuts. That doesn't usually happen, but that's just nuts. But still, you know, a lot of uh, hard work and ingenuity goes into um, the marketing side of creating that platform and creating the ability for that to even happen even if it is only once that it's happened yeah no it, it, and i have to say it does sometimes things go viral because you just hit a nerve mm. um i suppose the question that i'm leading to is beyond yes. creating amazing content for ah. women and giving them a voice how did you how manage to grow it, it? yeah <laughs> yes so that's such a good question and such an important question because I'm the co-founder of Mamma Mia. It's not just about me. My husband is the other half. And the way we've been able to grow and turn this into a business is very much because of him. So um, I started it as a blog and I'm very much the content person. And he was the one that came in and said, maybe we can grow this into a business. And he's been the one who has, he's the CEO and I'm the, the creative director and we're co-founders, and he is the one that has always steered the company strategically. So he's the one that's had the vision, the business background. Um, He's done all of that. I am literally the maker of the content, Mm. and that's where I'm happiest. And the more I'm dragged into that management um, place, which, of course, you have to be when you're in a startup. It's only in the last... And I still am dragged into that more and more. But as we've gotten bigger and we've been able to hire great people, um, I've been able to get back to what I love doing, which is making things and, you know, being a creator. So we've got a managing director whose name's Kylie Rogers and we've got Jason and we've got me. And, and I sort of worked out just last month when I was thinking about our different skills. I'm the maker, Kylie's the doer and Jason is the thinker or the strategizer or the planner or whatever you want to say. And, mm. As long as I'm in my lane, I like being in my lane very much Um, and I'm happiest there and it's best for the business when I'm there. When I'm pulled out of my lane, um, it's not good for anyone. (laughs) Cause traffic accidents. Exactly. So, you know, starting a business and and doing a startup, it's very, very important um, to know your strengths and work towards them and hire against your weaknesses. And if you can't afford to hire, try to partner against your weaknesses. So just because you love donuts doesn't mean you necessarily should open a donut store. Um, Just because you love cooking doesn't mean you necessarily should open a cafe. Um, And I think it's really important to know that because the the food is half the part of a cafe, but there's also a whole business piece that's really, really important. So if you're a chef or a really enthusiastic home cook who wants to open a cafe – 
you should find a partner who has skills and strengths that you don't have. Don't go into business with another chef or another cook because then you'll have too many cooks. <laughs> <laughs> and too many cooks spoil the broth. They really do. I was talking to a girlfriend the other day who's coming out of print and she's talking about starting um, an online business with a friend and I said, you know what, you guys, are the, the friend that she was talking about, their, their skill set's too similar. And she's like, no, 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 we're really different. And they're different a little bit in that small lane of their skill set. But in terms of what's required to start a business, they're almost identical. Mm. So I think that's really, really important. Had it just been me, I probably would have burnt out a long time ago and I would be, you know, twitching in a corner somewhere, which sometimes I still am. But... Um, <laughs> I, I very much couldn't have done this on my own. Mm. I read um, on that twitching in the corner note, I read somewhere and feel free to dismiss this question if you want. Um, but I was oh, reading... Sorry? Sounds juicy. <laughs> well, I was reading that you uh, uh, not long ago had a nervous breakdown um, because of yes. the kind of weight of expectations about who you should be and who you felt you wanted to be and the incongruence of that um, and what that's kind of led to subsequently? Not so much. So half of that's true. It's funny having someone else refer to it as a nervous breakdown. Um, that, that is what my, my uh, therapist called it at the time. But it was not um, about any of those things. In fact, it was about um, a condition, a generalized anxiety disorder, which is something I've had for a long, long time. And um, it's actually a chemical imbalance in the same way that anxiety can be a chemical imbalance in the same way that depression can. Mm. And um, it was a perfect storm of a situation where um, I, funnily enough, went to a health retreat and left the health retreat and continued to try and live like I did on the health retreat without any of the crutches and the things that I like in my life, which is I like to have, I like to be really, really busy. And people with anxiety often do need a lot of distraction in their life. Mm. And when I dismantled all of that, um, I got triggered into this really awful panic attack that lasted about 10 days. So um, that was not any kind of existential crisis or um, pressure or stress of running a business. Running a business can be really, really stressful. Being in the public eye can be really, really stressful. But stress is different to anxiety. Mm. Um, and now I, you know, since that time I've taken medication for my anxiety and it doesn't completely cure it, but it makes it so much more manageable. And I still get stressed. I actually need to be stressed a little bit. Um, I find it quite <laughs> energizing. Being Feels your competitive up. nature. Yeah, I run best when I've got lots to do. Um, and I think there are a lot of people like that. But, um, you know, anxiety was really affecting my life and, and it's only when it got to breaking point that I sort of looked back and realised that it, it had been this way my whole life actually. It just got to a, you know, I got, got to a climax I suppose a few years ago. Um, but and, and that's another thing I, I talk about because I think there are a lot of people, particularly a lot of women who suffer, suffer in silence from anxiety and, and are worried about what it might mean to seek help or go on medication. Um, so again, all I can do is just tell my story and what happened to me and what I chose to do. But, um, you know, if that can help anyone, then it's worth it. Mm. Oh, definitely. Uh, you you mentioned in there that you um, that you feel as though 
upon reflection, you realize this is something that you'd carried with you for your whole life. Um, another thing that I noticed was that you are Jewish. I am also Jewish. Uh, ah. And being brought up in a, um, in a Jewish community in Australia, I'm not sure if you went to a Jewish school, but I, I did. Yeah, but I, I knew a lot of people who did. Yeah, and there's kind of I'm not sure if you your friends would be able to relate to this sentiment that there's pressure from your school to achieve academically and for people like you and I who are creatives um there's a perhaps a feeling of being misunderstood within that. Uh do, do you feel as though your was your upbringing particularly religious in any way and do you feel as though that contributed or hindered what you wanted to be doing with your life? No, I didn't have a religious upbringing. My my mum's not actually Jewish, um, so I had to officially convert before my son had his bar mitzvah mm. um, to be considered Jewish. Um, but and my father's not religious, so we're very culturally Jewish. Um, more than when I say we're very culturally Jewish, we are culturally Jewish <laughs> rather than religiously Jewish. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's all about the food and about. The yep, I hear taste. you. All of those kinds Chicken of Chicken soup, pickled cucumbers and egg yes. salad. Exactly. And lots of cake. All the time cake. So, um, you know, and of course, like so many Jews and Laps Jews, I feel most Jewish when in, in the face of anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and, we, and when I married my husband who is Jewish and, and you know, similarly more culturally than, than religiously Jewish, um, I, I did have to confront a whole lot of stuff around that. But in terms of my upbringing, no, I think I, I don't know what it's like to go to a Jewish school, but I know that um, both the school I went to and the family I came from um, was very encouraging of creativity. You know, mm. my, my father's mother was an artist. Um, my mother was a psychologist and a photographer so, um, no, there was never any sense that I had to go and be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. Mm. Do you remember your first date with your husband? Um, I do. It was um, not even really a date. Um, a mutual friend of ours came along. We, we'd been introduced that day at a, a friend's barbecue and we decided to sort of kick on and the three of us go and see a movie together. Um, so we did. So <laughs> there were three of us on that date. And then, um, yeah, the next week we, we met at a party and, you know, kind of went home together. So we didn't have a date for a while. We sort of just did things very fast. Yeah, right. Very fast. Very uh, fast. And when you started this business together, did you feel a need to kind of set very clear boundaries and parameters or was it just something that you just did and it kind of evolved into being... Um, what it is now? Um, well, we we you kind of can't when there's just two of you in the lounge room. There's only you can't really have any boundaries. I mean, we were always clear that he was going to take over the business side and the tech side, and I was going to be um, look after the content. But when there's just two of you, it's all kind of mushed into one. Yeah. But we've always had, you know, once we moved out of the house and moved into an office, we've we've always driven separately to work together. Apologies to the environment for uh, all that fossil fuel that we burn. Um, Just get a Tesla. 
Exactly. I would love that. Um, and we, um, we've never shared an office. We actually, since we started working together and the times that we work together most is when we see very little of each other during the day. So we've always worked in very separate parts of the business. But, um, and I have to say that the less we can overlap, the better um, with work. Um, but for many years, that wasn't possible because everything we did was together. Mm. Um, I think we've always been very respectful of each other's skills. And, um, you know, it was hard at first because it was just me and it was my name and I wasn't used to having to ask anyone anyone or, or share decisions. I was able to, I was, you know, just um, able to do whatever I wanted. Um, so that was a, a sort of a... You know, it took a while to adjust to having to share that, but also with having to share power, also comes having to respect, share responsibility, which is great. Yeah, <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I think um, as I've said through this, it's it's just amazing to see what you have created, um, and I feel very grateful for uh, getting to speak to you for uh, for an hour um today oh, Alistair, that's so kind of you thanks i've really enjoyed the chat um i have one last question that i ask everyone on this yeah. show um and i should actually mention that uh you are going to be episode 52 of my weekly podcast which means you oh. are the one year anniversary of starting the show um, so <laughs> double thank you for that um my pleasure what an honor my last question is what makes you silly Oh, I'm so silly. I'm so childish. I'm childish in the office. I'm childish at home with my children. Um, wine makes me silly. <laughs> um, so does tea when I've had some tea. But I find that being silly is how I tap into my creativity, mm. you know. Um, yeah, that sort of childishness is why I'm really tired of, and I don't manage anymore, I don't have any direct reports, um, because you can't be silly and childish when you are managing people. Uh, and so I'm not managing people, so I can just be silly. <laughs> so I'm silly with my clothes, I'm silly with my, I'm more cautious with my words because I've seen how making a joke can be taken out of context or mm. just make a throwaway comment. And I've certainly copped that before by just, having something that either wasn't thought through or was taken out of context and then sort of twisted into a, a club used to hit me over the head. But so I'm much more cautious than I was, but around my family, around my dogs, around my team at work, I'm very silly. Mm. It's important to have irreverence in your life. Thank you. Good. Yes. I often wonder if it's a failing, but, um, oh, not at all. Five this year. So thank you, Alistair, for making me feel better about that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. My grandfather, who's 87, says the 11th commandment is thou shalt laugh, especially at thyself. Oh, good. Yes, I think that's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. Um, someone I work with says that I dress like a four-year-old, so a four-year-old little girl. So I think there's probably something in that. I'm very silly with my clothes. I like things that are sparkly and clashing prints and... <laughs> you know, sparkly tiaras in my hair. I'm very childish with how I present myself to the world. That's amazing. I'm going to come to Sydney and I'm going to visit your office. <laughs> Please do. I shall. Thank you so much, Mia. See you, Alistair. Thanks for having me. 